Welcome to the Legal One podcast, brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training in the state of New Jersey. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we are thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing critical legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other critical stakeholders to positively address the issues in question. And we'll give you more information. We'll give you resources so that you can access online courses and other events and know how to get a greater level of understanding of these issues. So let's get started. And thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I'm the director of the Legal One program, and I am very happy to have you here for this special episode of the Legal One podcast. I have with me today Dr. Wayne Yankis, longtime school physician who has been a great partner with us on so much of our school law training. Dr. Yankis, thank you as always for being with us. You're very welcome, David. I am a former high school teacher who has spent 37 years in general pediatrics, in which I'm board certified and have been a school physician for all that time. So, of course, you come to our conversation today with a wealth of practical experience that I think will be very helpful to our listeners. Today, we're going to be discussing some of the latest developments related to the public health guidelines that apply to school districts. We do have an announcement by Governor Phil Murphy that all schools will be fully in person by fall of 2021, and we will not have a remote learning option available for our schools. So we had that announcement by Governor Phil Murphy on March 24th. The day before that, on March 23rd, we had new guidelines released by the New Jersey Department of Health. Uh, for public school districts in New Jersey, K through 12, walking through some important changes in our public health guidelines. The New Jersey Department of Health guidelines effectively adopted new CDC guidelines that came out the week before on March 19th and were voluntary, of course, for school districts across the country, but were adopted in effect by the state of New Jersey. So, Dr. Yankis, I wanted to talk through with you some key elements of this latest version of guidance released by the New Jersey Department of Health. Can you talk about what is different in this guidance compared to what we previously saw from the New Jersey Department of Health? Sure, David. There are a number of items that are new and different. And as you have stressed, the governor has put forth a number of requests that we should move forward. I think we keep in mind always that the CDC recommends, but the Department of Health carries the weight of statute with it. One of the things that is different, of course, is the issue of physical distancing, something we used to call social distancing, but physical distancing is actually a better term. It's been promoted that students be seated at least three feet apart, and that applies particularly to the primary grades where the transmission rate for COVID-19 is very low. Prior to this time, a classroom could hold maybe 10 to 15 students. 
Now we're going to increase that number by changing the distance to three feet of masked students. We do know that for high school and middle school students, six feet is still going to be the recommendation because they don't necessarily stay in the pod that first, second, third grade does. We also know that the change that was recommended in distancing also affects teachers and will affect how lunch, if it is served at all in your schools, how it's going to be handled because it will remain six feet apart. All this has to do with the regional matrix. If your schools or county are in a high transmission zone, six feet is still the recommended separate distance student to student. If you're in a yellow or green lower transmission zone, you're able to pull off the three feet without any difficulty. And it remains to be seen as we go into warmer weather, more open windows, how successful we'll be with this transition. That's one of the first changes that's come about in the new document. So it's very important to stress that we do have a different approach that we're taking for elementary students versus older students in either middle school or high school. And as you said, research is showing us that there are higher transmission rates for older students than we see for younger students and some greater health risks for older students versus younger students. So I'm sure that in large part, that's driving the fact that we're looking at this change for our elementary students. I think we need to remember that unlike influenza, where children infect adults, this is a disease where adults infect children. The transmission is linear. So we expect success because of the low transmission rates we've been seeing in our primary and elementary school grades. But of course, with high school students being much more mobile and much more collegial, they are bigger transmitters. So there are many people who are hearing that the standards are changing and perhaps there is being perceived as a relaxing of standards. Can you comment on the importance of maintaining the other health protocols that we know we need to have in place, like wearing a mask and hand washing? Is there any reason that we should be letting down our guard on those measures? Absolutely none, David. Masks, hand hygiene, and physical distance remains the cornerstone of preventing transmission and spread of this particular aggressive disease. What we have learned is that, in fact, because it is a respiratory virus, the further you are away from an individual who may be an asymptomatic transmitter, the safer you will be. Speaking, breathing, singing, any kind of shouting just projects the virus that much further. So again, while we've learned masks, hand hygiene, and distance are the cornerstones of safety to prevent transmission of this vaccine, we also know that soon taking students and classes outdoors and opening windows and improving circulation will certainly also help in our particular climate. Those states that have been blessed with warmer weather throughout the year have been able to do this, but we have winter. And so now we look forward to spring to make some of those changes. As we start moving towards a significant reopening of our public schools and we start approaching having all of our students back in the school buildings, we're going to have some new challenges that we didn't have before, just simply because of the larger number of individuals that we're putting into that existing space. 
So can we talk about some of the foreseeable dangers and challenges that will come with having virtually all of our students and faculty back in the buildings come September? Well, of course, schools are made up of faculty, administrators, and students. One of the biggest concerns during this epidemic and pandemic have been the issue of faculty illness and faculty hesitancy to return to work and the fact that we have not yet at this point in time immunized all our faculty. So what will make a difference between now and the opening of school after Labor Day in the fall will be the distribution of the vaccines, the three accepted vaccines we have right now, and the willingness of faculty to be immunized. Remember that also our older students, 16 and up and 18 and up, depending upon vaccine availability, can also be immunized, probably more likely in the fall, our younger students, we don't know when they will be immunized as studies and tests haven't been done. So for success in the fall, between now and then, it will count on immunization, acceptance of the immunization, as well as the fact that we will have, again, a season of warmer weather and time off from school for people to be out of corporate activity. I think that's going to make a big difference as to how we bring all people back in the fall. But regarding faculty, we have to make them comfortable with being around students and being also in in-person teaching. Many faculty live with relatives who are immunocompromised in cancer chemotherapy. Many live with older relatives, all of whom are vulnerable because this pandemic will not magically stop July 1st or September 1st. The disease will still be with us and it may be that we all get vaccinated in a second round for the coming school season. So we have a lot of work to do with our faculty to keep schools open in the fall to make them feel safe and return to work. I would venture to say most HR departments at schools have found a lot of 504s for faculty who want to teach only virtually. So it's going to be a challenge over the summer for us to ready schools to be in person in the fall. And as we think about uh, the many challenges that come with the large-scale reopening of schools in the fall, it is important for our school districts to think about the nuts and bolts of how our students will move within the buildings. So, so for example, you know, one of the strategies that school districts have been asked to implement is enforcing one-way traffic in the halls. Logistically, that can be a real challenge once we have large numbers of students back in our building. Is that something that school districts should still be looking to do this fall? Magic words for this pandemic in schools have been nimble and pivot. You have to be nimble and you have to be willing to pivot. What we learned is that taking temperatures every day probably didn't make a difference, but walking one way in the hall with distance between did make a difference. Wiping playgrounds down for a period of time did make a difference. Certainly, obviously, masks, hand hygiene made a difference as well. What we have to keep in mind with the fall and bringing everybody back is where were they over the summer? Were they at camp? Were they at grandma's? They certainly weren't on a farm in Kansas away from nowhere. And what concerns a lot of physicians is, you know, we used to joke in pediatrics when school started, all the lice were going to come back because they were all in camps and everywhere else. Well, we don't know what germs they picked up over the summer. We do know this year what we did do was we eliminated flu by virtue of masks and hand washing and distancing. So again, while we have political pronouncements as to what we should be doing in the fall, while we will do that, 
we need to remember that we may have to pivot and we may have to be nimble to do different kinds of class orientation. The beauty of New Jersey in the fall is at least most of the time we can take it outdoors and that helps a great deal. But my expectation with the fall is we will also probably ramp up the sports programs that were suppressed to some degree. And sports is another breeding ground as we learned this spring and winter for the disease. Many of our positive students were positive because they were on teams. Where golf is safe, wrestling is not. Where swimming is safe, volleyball may not be. So we have to relook at that between now and the fall as to when football and those kinds of contact sports take place, how do we plan to handle that, including cheerleading, if the pandemic is still in a highly transmissible zone? If not, we can be a lot more liberal with what we do. So as we think about some of the challenges of the fall, we also have to think about the behavioral issues that some students do bring with them and the physical health issues that some students do bring with them as well. So Dr. Yankis, can you talk a little bit about the increasing challenge of having, you know, all or virtually all of our students with disabilities back in the building and the group of students who might have unique health needs or major behavioral issues that make it difficult for those students to comply with our health protocols? Well, handling the the medical needs first, there will certainly be children who are immunosuppressed, There are children with cancer who are on chemo or have just finished, and it will be really up to their medical home or specialists to determine whether it's safe for them to return to corporate learning. That's fortunately a small number of children, but it is something we have to reckon with, and we provide alternative sources of education. There will be children who have what I would call moderate medical needs, where in fact it may be difficult for them to come back on their medications, because once we start school, we start with the cough season. We start with the cold season. And while coronavirus is in fact a cold virus, one of the things this new document from the CDC and New Jersey Department of Health talked about at length was testing. And one of the ways these fragile children coming back to school may successfully be there would be is if there is in-school testing. But that's a whole different discussion. Now then there's the kids that are challenged and are challenging because of discipline issues, whether it be attention deficit, whether it be other issues related to their behavior in school. This is where the challenge of teachers and students together come together because this whole class of young people, maintaining physical distance is difficult, if not impossible. We don't know what our staffing will look like in the fall. We've had a lot of retirements this year. We've had a lot of people resign. We've had a lot of people who didn't get tenure who are not staying in the job. So staffing for this group of people and students will be very much looked at over the summer. And it'll be interesting to see how well we can handle these kids who are otherwise federally entitled to the least restrictive education that we can provide. One of the challenges that we have to think about is the potential for variants of the virus to be spreading. Can you talk about that issue and how, for example, travel could accelerate the transmission of variants? Variants obviously are mutations or different forms of the coronavirus. There are thousands of coronaviruses. And respiratory viruses, much like influenza, viruses live to mutate and mutate to live. 
So essentially, we will continue to see new variants. The variants that have come out from South Africa, Brazil, the UK, there are now a total of eight, are much more transmissible than the initial coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 that got this all started. So travel, which is going to be and has always been, we've seen after the holiday break in December, January, we saw it with the Martin Luther King break, we saw it with the President's Weekend break, we are now seeing it with any April break that a school has taken because we didn't have a lot of snow days to chew up that vacation. We are going to see within two weeks of return of students a lot of increase in virus in what is already a high transmission state. So we take the virus with us where we go and we bring the variants back to the schools and to the families where we've been. So it is important to keep in mind that we are not out of the woods yet, back to nimble and pivot. Schools may need to pivot back to virtual as well as schools may need to be nimble enough to quarantine a class, quarantine a pod, do whatever, we're going to see increase after travel. And the variants will continue to increase in number as we go through the remainder of this season. Now, the good news is coronavirus season is typically colder weather in our climate on the East Coast Northeast. And we hopefully will start to see a little bit of what we did last summer which is it settles down and calms down when people tend not to be cooped up indoors and when schools don't tend to be in session. So we may have good news for the fall. So it is important to stress that we have seen some real progress in addressing the coronavirus. We, of course, can be so focused on the challenges that we might lose perspective on some of the positive things that are happening. So Dr. Yankis, there has been a significant increase in access to vaccination, which has been a very positive development. And we have almost eradicated the flu, as you mentioned, through some of the measures that we've taken. Any final advice for those listening to this podcast as we think about responsibly moving to a large-scale reopening of our schools? Well, here's some good news, and, and you're right, David. Increased vaccination will increase the herd immunity. So obviously, we don't want herd immunity by everybody getting sick. We want herd immunity through immunization. We are in a state that still allows religious exemption, and so that was something that was challenged earlier. But we hope that we can get more people to be convinced to take this vaccine as it comes to create herd immunity to get our kids back to school and our adults back to work. The other good news is there's increased available free testing. So testing makes a big difference. If you are going to travel, the recommendation as of today is still to test before you travel, even if you're immunized, and to test in your quarantine when you return from your travel three to five days later, so that even if you've been immunized, you're not spreading the virus because the vaccine will keep you well, but it does not necessarily keep you from spreading the virus. Other good news is that we've learned with increased testing that we may, in fact, find a way with our faculty to keep them healthy and safe, to feel good about being back in our schools. And another total aside is we've learned with our older students that with virtual learning, they got up later, they slept longer, their grades did better. As a consequence, the studies that have been done for years by the American Academy of Pediatrics were proven fully 
that those virtual older kids who were able to come to school at eight in the morning as opposed to getting up at six actually had better grades. So we have to figure out how to do that going forward, see if we can do a sleep study in New Jersey. I think the other good news going forward is that people will come back with a new understanding of things that we can do to prevent disease. And I think the hand washing stations will not go away. Mask wearing will not be as controversial. And I think students have fallen into place. They've followed good examples and have been willing to do this. So I think we're going to see a lot of changes that will be in place. And with vaccines like flu and like coronavirus coming possibly yearly, we may see an end to the pandemic. So with that, I want to thank you, Dr. Yankis, as always, for taking the time to share your expertise and your experience in working with New Jersey school districts. You've been a real leader on these issues, and we thank you for all of the work that you're doing for us here in New Jersey. Well, thank you. You're a big help also to the people I work with in administration, but also the physicians that listen to this as well who may not be as aware as to what administrators deal with in terms of dealing with health in schools. For our listeners, we do want you to know that we also have helpful links on our website to the latest guidance from the New Jersey Department of Health and the CDC and the latest information regarding coronavirus. So we encourage you to go to our website, www.njpsa.org slash legal1nj. And we also have a special section of that website that gives you more information regarding the Legal One podcast. So thank you, everyone, for listening to this important special episode of our podcast. Be well, and we look forward to seeing you in the near future. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.